Let us pray. Gracious living God, we give you thanks. We give you thanks because you live, we can face whatever it is that we face. We give you thanks, O Lord, that because you live, we have come this far. And God, we give you thanks that we can have hope in you. Because he lives, we can face whatever tomorrow holds, knowing that you are with us, that you are there to carry us, that you love us enough, even love us enough to go on that cross, die and rise for us. And so God, in this deep spirit of thanksgiving, knowing how deeply thankful we are for what you have done in our lives, we come to you now with those places that we still hurt, with those joys, those concerns, the things that are on our hearts. In particular, we lift up Ami's grandmother, um, her health condition and her bleeding. We lift up uh, Leon uh, Harborough, uh, who's suffering from double pneumonia, um, is in ICU on a ventilator. God, we pray for Leon. Uh, we pray for healing. We lift up Colin McFall, uh, who suffered a heart attack. Uh, God, we pray for his healing. God, we pray for your hands uh, to surround him, for your loving arms to embrace him. God, heal him. We lift up Sandra, who's continuing to suffer from cancer. And so, God, we pray for Sandra. We pray for Sandra's treatment. We pray for Sandra's healing. We lift up Paul Harrell, uh, who the doctors have given six months to live. Um, but as this uh, text message, as this message says, uh, but they are not God and only you are. Um, and so God, uh, we lift up Paul. We pray for Paul's healing. We pray for miracles in whatever form. We continue uh, to lift up John uh, and Bela, uh, both of them, uh, for healing. Uh, God, we pray um, that John may continue to grow stronger and continue to recover from the stroke. And God, we also lift up this ongoing coronavirus pandemic, knowing that now 7.3 million Americans are currently suffering. And so God, we pray for healing. God, we lift up our doctors and our first responders, but God, we pray that for all those who are suffering, that the disease may be driven out of their bodies, that they may have the medical attention they need, that we all may come through this time together. And God, we know we do not do as we should, and we sin and fall short of your glory. And so God, we ask humbly for your forgiveness, knowing even as we do, there is that next chance, that second chance in you. And so God, may we use that second chance. May we take it and run with it. May we take what you have given us, the love, the comfort, the peace, and strength, and go out in the world as your people, being your hands and feet and instruments of your peace in the world. In Jesus' most holy name we pray. Amen. Our scripture this morning comes from the second chapter of the Gospel according to Matthew, verses 1 through 12. In the time of King Herod, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, Wise men from the east came to Jerusalem asking, Where is the child who has been born king of the Jews? For we have observed his star at its rising and have come to pay him homage. When, the king, when king Herod heard this, he was frightened and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means the least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who is, who is to shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod secretly called the wise men and learned from them the exact time when the star had appeared. Then he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word, so that I may also go and pay him homage. When they had heard the king, they set out, and there ahead of them went the star that they had seen in its rising, until it stopped over the place the child was. When they saw that the star had stopped, they were overwhelmed with joy. 
On entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they knelt down and paid him homage. Then, opening their treasure chest, they offered him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they left for their own country by another road. This is God's good word for us, God's beloved people. Thanks be to God. Amen. So, at some point in my career, I made a conscious choice that I'm not sure I meant to make, but I did. I gave up on the idea of working in like professional theater and have spent the most of my career working with people with way less acting experience and yet had a, having a lot better time. There is something fun about working with professionals, sure, in that, you know, they are good at what they do and they know how to do it. But something equally special happens uh, when a group of amateurs who have very little idea what they're doing, but they really want to be there, come together, give it their all, and truly, again, you can achieve truly magical results. Some of my favorite moments in any play I've ever been a part of where I, I did a live nativity at a church in, a, excuse me, a, a living last supper at a church in Fairfax, Virginia. I had a whole bunch of like ex-military and three-letter agency guys. I, you need 13 men. And so I don't know what percentage of these men were in the CIA, but it was more than half of them were in the CIA or some equivalent agency, right? Um, and yet they all rehearsed, they all learned their lines, they all willingly put on wigs, including Doug, um, who is about who's this tall, about this wide, right? Like, um, absolutely no hair on top. It's like, what if Danny DeVito had joined the military? That's what Doug looked like. I have this wonderful picture on my phone somewhere of Doug with like a cropped goatee and flowing blonde wig. Turns out Doug looked great as a blonde. He... Doug had never acted in his life. Doug had been in more battlefields than, sta than backstages, but it was an amazing experience because they really wanted to be there. And the only thing motivating them was a joy of being there, and then they're as surprised as anybody when it all works out. And it's not just the theater. It turns out the entire kingdom of God is built on people who chose to be there. Not necessarily the people you would expect to be there. As a church pastor, I will tell you, not always the people you want to be there, uh, but always the people who chose to be there. And that idea, that, that choice to be there, that choosing Christ, sits at the heart of today's story, sits at the heart of the journey of the wise men. Because I want us to... Act like you've never heard this story before. Act like you've never heard the story before. And realize that this story, much like the shepherd showing up at Jesus' birth, this story is meant to be incredibly shocking to you and incredibly disappointing and then incredibly hopeful. But what we miss often is the incredible disappointing part because we go, yeah, 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 of course that's how that goes. I want to tell you how this story should have gone, and then we'll go back to how it did go. But go with me on this flight of fancy. This is how I think this story should have gone, okay? Wise men arrive from the east. They go to King Herod. 
That's how that would normally work. It's basically a diplomatic mission. And so you would go do the diplomatic protocol thing and check in and say, hi, we have seen the star at its rising. We are here to worship the child, king of the Jews. Then, okay, we're good so far. That is, that's in the story that is what happened. Then Herod should go to the scribes to find out where the kid is. And the scribes tell him in Bethlehem. At this point, the story changes a lot. Because now they know this is the kid. This is the long-awaited king. By the way, they've been waiting for like two to four hundred years, uh, depending on how you draw that timeline, for that kid. The promised Messiah is here. At this point, all of Jerusalem, all of the chief priests, all of the scribes, and King Herod should have traveled with the Magi um, to here and bowed down. This should be a circle. There should be so many people in this scene that they're flowing out of the doors. It shouldn't be like two random shepherds, some kings, a camel that may or may not have been there. They might have ridden horses. The sheep that were there, the, uh, the donkey that isn't. This should be full of people. This should be full of scribes and priests and a king. An earthly one, not a heavenly one. And all of Herod's household. Because they're the people who should be the most excited about this. They know the story so well. They're one of the few literate people in the world at the time. And so they could actually read the scripture and understand what this promise is. And understand what this promise meant. And understand what this could be. And they've just been told that he's there. And by the way, uh, Bethlehem is only five miles from Jerusalem. I've traveled longer today than they would have had to to go to there. Now, mind you, I had a truck and they were on foot or on camel, but still, you could get from Bethlehem to Jer Jerusalem to Bethlehem on foot in less than three hours. And they would have been excited and in a hurry because they want to go worship the child, right? They want to go worship the king because the king has arrived and they're the people who should be the most excited about it. And they're not. I mean, scripture tells us they're super not. And actually, they get way less excited even than this. They're picking up uh, verse 3 um, through verse 4. When King Herod heard this, he was frightened, and all Jerusalem with him. And calling together the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. Then the quote from Micah 5, Bethlehem of Judea. Y'all know it from there. They're not thrilled. They're frightened. For Herod, who really likes being an earthly king... The concept of a heavenly one, it's not good news for him. For the temple and the scribes, we don't quite know, but you can guess, right? I had a pretty sweet deal going. Uh, what with them getting all the sacrifices and them being in charge of God and them being the only ones who can see God and then God shows up in the flesh. It's really inconvenient, really wrecks the sweet deal they had going for about a thousand years. And then Herod who is paranoid and terrible, kills hundreds of children just to try and kill off the Christ child. It's disappointing, right? They should be thrilled. They freak out, and in one case, they try to kill him. Meanwhile, the Magi, who are nobody, like, go and bow down. And open up their treasure chests 
and give him weird baby shower presents, gold, and frankincense, and myrrh. And they're Gentiles from East. They practice a whole different, they're priests of an entirely different religion focused on the stars. And yet they traveled hundreds of miles, rather than five, to uh, worship a child that they had no previous experience with. And when, they, when the star stops, they're thrilled. The joy fills their hearts. They bow down. They worship. And then, by departing a different road, they save the kid's life by giving Jesus that narrow window to escape to Egypt before Herod's goons can find him. The story should have gone really different. Matthew's community, we don't know. We can never fully know. But we have guesses about who each of the gospel writers are writing to, right? That John, writing last, is writing to a whole bunch of Greek philosophers. People love Greek philosophy. And so you heard in Emily's sermon last week, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God, man, right? It's this super, like, high philosophical, theological thing. That's his audience, right? Luke is writing to, the, to Paul's churches, right? He's one of Paul's right-hand men. And so he's writing to a mixture of Jews and Christian, Jews and Gentiles, uh, trying to, like, capture what the meaning of Jesus' life is for people who had no real background in that before. Mark's writing first, and I think Mark is as surprised as you are is that we're all still reading it, because if Mark thought uh, that we were going to be still reading it 2,000 years later, he might have included more details. He might have written more. Um, it's like he's like, yeah, yeah, you know the rest, and then this happened, you remember that, and this happened, you remember how that happened, you remember this person, and I go, no, Mark, it's 2,000 years later, I've never heard of any of these people. He might have written more if he hadn't, if he'd known we'd still be reading it. But Matthew is writing to a very different community than the other three. Matthew's community is a bunch of Jewish Christians living in a Gentile world. And so we know from history that early Christians did not have an easy time in the Gentile world. They didn't practice the religion that they were expected to practice. They didn't make their sacrifices to Poseidon and to Isis and to, you know, Hestia, etc., right? They worshipped God and, you know, follow the teachings of Christ. And so they were always going to be outside of the Gentile community. But it turns out they were also on the outside of the Jewish community. They were no longer, they had grown up in the synagogue. They got kicked out of the synagogue. They no longer got to come home for holidays. They got kicked out of the community that they spent their whole formative years in. As the lines started to harden between what is Judaism and what is Christianity, Matthew's community is stuck in between them. No longer Jewish enough for the synagogue, certainly not Gentile enough for the Gentile community. They're outsiders, like the Magi. And they're outsiders like the Magi for the same reason. They chose Christ. What sets the Magi apart? They choose Christ. And so Matthew includes this story so that his community can look around and go, oh, I see myself. I know how that story feels. Yeah, that story happened a long time ago, but I can see myself in it. These people also choose Christ, and that's the thing that matters. The Magi have no background in this. Herod has all the background in this. 
The Magi didn't grow up in a certain way, the, the correct way. The priests grew up in the correct way. They don't have any of the resume lines. Family, history, knowledge. All they have is the choice that they have made. To seek the child. To find truth in God's word. To let that lead them to bow down and worship the child. And then to offer that child the best of what they have. Gold and frankincense and myrrh. And this is where we can see ourselves as well. Each of us grew up in a different way. Maybe we grew up in the church. Maybe not. Maybe we grew up knowing all the scriptures. Maybe not. Maybe we grew up doing what we were supposed to do. Or maybe not. Or maybe some of column A and some of column B or a lot of column B and not much column A. We're all different. But that's not the piece that matters the most to God. What matters the most to God is a choice we make. The most important choice that we can make. To seek God. To bow down and give our life to God. And to offer God the best of what we have. That's what defines us as Christians. That's what defines us as God's people. And that's what the Magi are doing here. They are the first image of the people with no background in this, being let in, becoming part of the story, and even having their own role to play in saving the kid's life. They don't belong here. They're Gentile astrologer priests. They're as weird as the shepherds, if not weirder, right? So now imagine, right? The birth of Jesus takes place um, at the, you know, uh, you know, here in Palestine, the angels appear in Walmart, um, and the first people to show up um, are strange people in strange rooms from a religion you've never heard of. They don't fit. Because of the choice they made. They belong. And Herod doesn't. Herod could, but he chooses not to. The priests could but they choose not to. The scribes could, but they choose not to. Who does choose? The unwed mother, the working class carpenter, the shepherds, and the weird religious freaks from somewhere else. What matters to, for them is what can matter for us as well. To choose to seek God, to choose to follow God, to choose to give God the best that we can. And this is how God has worked since the beginning of Christ's story. When these three random magi from a super random country become as much a part of the story as anybody. Meaning that we can be as much a part of the story as anybody. It matters only what we choose now and what we continue to choose in our lives. The rest of it gets brushed 
away. You grab the hands of people around you, form one united body in Christ with the power of God's spirit that is what we are. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord. Seek God. Choose God. Give God the best of what you have. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.